got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in there again to the book of Psalms. This morning we will be in the 19th Psalm. A couple of weeks ago I put a post on our church Facebook group asking for suggestions for the last Psalm in our study through the Psalms of the summer, and uh, it was a sincere blessing to be able to read through those Psalms this past week. Um, and quite difficult to decide. Um, all we have to do is open to the Psalms, and uh, there's beauty and majesty and uh, a treasure trove of the human emotions that are uh, expounded for us on these pages. But in the end, I made my decision based on the type of Psalms that we've been walking through this summer and the types of Psalms that we haven't yet touched on. And the only psalm that was suggested that was of a type that we haven't yet covered this summer was Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is a didactic psalm, which means that it is a psalm that teaches us something. But Psalm 19 is much more than just a psalm that teaches us about God. I believe Psalm 19 to be the greatest example of ancient Hebrew poetry that we have today. The great C.S. Lewis wrote of Psalm 19, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter, meaning the book of Psalms, and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. But the beauty of this psalm is not intended just to shine the light on its beauty as poetry, but to shine its light on the beauty of the one who is its subject. Listen to what commentator Jim Hamilton writes about Psalm 19. He says, David has carefully arranged a string of words meant to sparkle with the glory of the one who it attempts to extol. That is to say, as beautiful as the psalm is, the point is not the beauty of the psalm, but the wonder of the one that it celebrates. Hamilton goes on and says that the beauty of the poetry here in this psalm is meant to communicate the intricacy and simplicity and the pulsating rhythm, rhythmic magnificence of the one whom it extols. And the one that David is extolling in Psalm 19 is our God. And so the, the, the aim is for the reader or the singer of this song, the hearer of this song, to celebrate the glory of God as it is beheld and apprehended both in creation and in the word of God itself. So that's David's aim with this psalm. The celebration of the glory of God both in creation and in the scriptures. And he accomplishes this not just through the, the beauty and the majesty of the lyrics of this song, but, but through the very content that it teaches us about God. Because after all, this is a didactic psalm and it teaches us something about God. As Derek Kidner notes about Psalm 19, its theology is as powerful as its poetry. And so I really want to try my best, and I want us to try our best, to hold those two things in balance this morning. 
And I want to try to highlight those two important aspects of this psalm. But in attempting to draw attention to the theology about God in this psalm, I run the very real risk of dissecting it to death. And in a sense, pulling a veil over the the beauty and the majesty of this psalm, which again points to the beauty, beauty and the majesty of God. And I don't want to do that. And so as we read this psalm together in just a moment, I want to encourage us to both listen to what it teaches us about the the glory of God and how it teaches us about the glory of God. Allow your mind to be taught about the glory of God and allow, as we read the scriptures, allow your soul to be lifted to apprehend the glory of God through the majesty and beauty of the lyrics themselves. So let's read Psalm 19. This is God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, when we read a portion of your word like this that stirs not just our mind, but our very soul by its words, we are So thankful, Father, that you have revealed yourself to us in this book. That you have also revealed yourself to us in the world that you've placed around us. And so, Father, use your word this morning to encourage us and to extol us to see your glory in the world around us and in the word that you have given us. And may we, as a people of faith, respond to that revelation 
by seeking to follow after you with our whole hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Such a beautiful psalm, right? But also such a rich psalm and a treasure trove of rich theological truth. The 14 verses of Psalm 19 fall into three categories. The first six verses are about the revelation of God in the world as we behold and apprehend the glory of God in creation. In verses 7 through 11, we see the revelation of God in His Word as we behold the glory of God in the Scriptures themselves. And then in the closing three verses, we see what is our response to the revelation of God, how a worshiper of this God rightly responds to His revelation of Himself both in the world and in the Scriptures. So let's look first at the revelation of God in the world. The focus of these first six verses in Psalm 19 is creation. And the point of these verses is that God is glorified in that which He has made in the world around us. In these verses, David has creation personified to have the ability to speak. Creation is speaking here. Look at all the words, uh, the speech words used in the first four verses. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaim His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. Down in verse 4, their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And so David says that creation is declaring and proclaiming and it's pouring out speech, revealing knowledge. Its voice and its word is going out. And what does it say? What, what does it declare? What does it proclaim? About what does it pour out speech? And when its voice and its word goes out, what is it saying? Well, verse 1 tells us. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaim, I am His handiwork. When David mentions there in verse 1, the heavens, in that sense, he's not talking about uh, heaven as we might think of it, the, the spiritual abode of God, the, the spiritual heavens. Instead, he's talking about the sky. He's talking about what he sees when he looks up. In the heavens, they declare the glory of God. That, that phrase, the, the sky above, refers to the expanse of the sky that Moses writes about in Genesis 1 in the creation account where he causes the expanse to exist, the, the firmament in which he places the sun and the moon and the stars. David says they're speaking they're shouting. And what they shout is, God made me. And if you are awestruck by me, you ought to see the one who put me here. Have you ever been awestruck by creation? Have you ever had to catch your breath at the beauty and the splendor and the grandeur of Something that God made. 
We all have at one point or another. Whether it's uh, the sun setting over the ocean or the sun rising over the ocean. Whether it's standing at the base of a tall mountain and looking up or standing at the top of a tall mountain looking out over God's creation below you. Or gazing up at the night sky with the naked eye, especially when you're away from the city lights and you see the blanket of the celestial lights spread out from horizon to horizon. Or when you gaze up at the night sky with a powerful magnoscope, not a magnoscope, telescope, And it allows your eyes to see far beyond what the naked eye can see, far into the expanse that God created. Or maybe you've had the privilege of holding a precious newborn baby in your hands and marvel at the miracle of life to the point of tears. I remember the first time I stood at the southern rim of the Grand Canyon and just, I was, I was speechless. We weren't there for long. It was almost like a Chevy Chase kind of thing. It's like, okay, yeah, we see it. Go on. But I, I couldn't, I couldn't talk. I was awestruck at the, at the majesty of a God who would swipe his finger across the earth and create this expanse in the earth. This is not about the worship of creation is about the worship of the creator. All great works of art, whether they're paintings or, or, or sculptures or works of literature, they point to the, the, the painter, they point to the greatness of the sculptor or the author that created it. The Mona Lisa hanging on a wall in the Louvre in Paris tells us something about the greatness of the painter Leonardo da Vinci. The fresco on the wall, on the, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and the, and the sculpture of David in Florence tell us something about the greatness of the sculptor Michelangelo. Shakespeare's Macbeth tells us something about the greatness of him as an author and playwright. Beethoven's Fifth tell us something about the greatness of him as a composer. And David tells us in Psalm 19, there is a God who is the author of creation. He is the designer who set the laws of physics and nature into motion. He is the painter who painted every sunset we were in awe of and sculpted every mountain out of nothing. He composed the song of the nightingale and then gave it its beautiful voice with which to sing it. As Psalm 146 says, He set the stars in place and gave them all a name. Friend, if, if, if we 
If we can celebrate the greatness of the likes of Beethoven and Shakespeare and Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and the likes of them for the creations that they made, how much more ought we to celebrate the greatness of the one who made the world in which we live? Creation is speaking to us, Psalm 19 says. And it's telling us about the glory of God. In verse 2, we learn that this speech is ongoing and it's abundant. He says, day to day and night to night, it pours out speech and reveals knowledge about God. All day long, all night long as we sleep, whether we hear it or not, it is shouting to us, it is preaching to us, it is proclaiming to us that God is glorious. There is an abundance of creation's voice giving testimony to the glory and majesty and beauty of our God. No wonder Jesus said, if my disciples remain silent, even the rocks will cry out. But I wonder if we sometimes miss it. I wonder if we sometimes miss that declaration. When's the last time you stopped your busy, chaotic, hectic life in suburban America long enough to take notice of that voice and to listen to the song of creation as it shouts to us about the beauty and majesty and glory of God. It doesn't do it with words. It doesn't do it with a language as we would know language to be. As verse 3 reads, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And yet, as verse 4 tells us, their voice goes out just the same to all the earth. It's not with words. Poetically and under the inspiration of the Spirit, David tells us here that creation speaks, but it doesn't use words. It doesn't use language in that sense, but yet their words go out to the ends of the earth. Have you ever had to describe, have you ever tried to describe something of the magnitude and the beauty of something like, let's say, the the galaxy in which our solar system exists? Explain and describe both the magnitude and the sheer and utter beauty of that. Words will fail you, right? We, we, we will either seek to describe the beauty and the radiance of that scene and, and we will undersell the magnitude or we will use scientific language and measurements to describe the magnitude of the galaxy and we will undersell the brilliance of its beauty. Words fail. The best that we can do is, is provide a picture that's provided by a a powerful telescope that looks into the far reaches of the universe. Well, David says creation itself doesn't use words because words fail it. And the best they can do is give us a picture of something of the beauty and the majesty and the glory of the God who made them. Question is, do we hear it? Amidst the noise of our busy lives, do we take the time 
to tune our soul's ear to the orchestra of God's creation that's being played all around us. Friend, the application of this can happen as soon as we walk out these doors. It can happen as you stop listening to me and look at the beauty of the pines waving in the wind and the clouds rolling in. It can happen today, regardless of what the weather is. Listen to what it's saying. See who it is pointing to. It's pointing us to the majesty and the beauty and the glory of God. Creation says, look at me. Look at me. Look at me at my most glorious. Look at the most beautiful aspect of me, the most awe-inspiring part of me. I am but a shadow of the beauty and the majesty and the glory of our God. That's what creation does. In verses 4c through 6, David uses the sun as a metaphor to teach us about God. He says, in them, that is in the world, he has set a tent for the sun. The, the tent is the canopy of that expanse from Genesis 1 where God puts the sun, the moon, the stars, the celestial lights. He set a tent for the sun. And speaking of the sun, he says in verse 5, that it comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Friends, the, the bridegroom comes out of his wedding chamber beaming in radiant joy. And so this speaks of the radiance of creation and consequently the radiance of the glory of God. David says that the sun, also in verse 5, is like a strong man who runs its course with joy. The strong man is a, is a champion, it's a hero that, that runs its course and runs its race and finishes the race and wins the prize. It's a champion. When I was in high school, one of the sports I participated in was track and field. And at one of the meets, um, the Georgia Relays, back in those days, it was a combined meet with both high school and college athletes. We didn't race together. Um, fortunately, uh, I had a hard enough time with the high school athletes I competed against. But both high school teams and college teams were there. So the high schoolers would run their races, and then, the, then they'd have the college teams run their race. And uh, Georgia Tech was at that meet. And one of the runners on the Georgia Tech track and field team back in the early 80s, mid-80s, I know, Many of you weren't even born then. But back then, one of their runners was a guy named Antonio McKay. Antonio McKay was a 400-meter runner. That's the race that I ran. And he was an amazing athlete. Um, at that particular time, he held the world record for the indoor 400 meters. He would later go on to world, win world championships and gold medals in the Olympics. Dude was fast. And I got to see him run the 400 meters. Now, to the uninitiated to track and field, 400 meters is the most difficult race in the entire sport. It is basically an all-out sprint all the way around the track. You don't, basically, you don't let up the whole way. You run full out. I know the guys that run the 100-meter dashes, uh, they get all the notoriety. But the 400 meters, believe me, those guys are killing it. And so he starts the race. Antonio McKay, 
And before the first bend in the turn is done, he's already made up the gap in the next lane. I watch him on the back, strep, back, back stretch, and, and it's, like, it's like a hot knife through butter. I mean, he's just going, and it doesn't even look like he's trying. He's just like gliding on air. And then he comes around the back stretch, which for most people like myself, that's where the bear jumps on your back, and you begin to get all tense, and you're trying to finish the race as much as you can, and you, you break form, and you begin to slow down, but not so with Antonio McKay. He sped up. He just continued to glide those long, seemingly effortless strides all the way through the finish line, blowing away the competition. And it didn't even look like he had broken a sweat when he finished. It was absolutely amazing. He was like a strong man running its course with joy. And that's what David, how he describes the sun. It doesn't even look like it's trying hard. We, we don't look at the sun as it makes its way from one horizon to the next. It's like, wow, it's working really hard today. It's just doing its thing. It goes from one horizon to the next, from the sunrise to the sunset, and it never breaks form, and it always finishes its race. God is our strong man who upholds the universe by the word of his power, as the writer of Hebrews says. And he runs his course from the beginning of time to the end. And he he never breaks form. And he never even breaks a sweat. This speaks to us about something of the omnipotence of God and the eternality of God. He has no beginning and he he will have no end. His, His strength and power know no boundary and have no limit. The sun is singing us this song as it makes its way from the sunrise to the sunset. Look at me. You think I'm great. Check out the one who put me here. Continuing on about the sun in verse 6, David says, It's rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Which tells us about uh, the omnipresence of God and the omniscience of God. And just as nothing is hidden from the sun's heat, so nothing is hidden from God's eyes. And so that's the, that's the first part here of Psalm 19. But then in verse 7, David transitions from talking about the revelation of God in the world to talking about the revelation of God in his word While creation speaks to us and sings to us about God, it is the Word where we get to know God, where we know who He is. Scholars call this the difference between general revelation and special revelation. General revelation of God is God Himself revealing Himself to us in the world around us that he, made, that he made. And it's revelation that all can see and all should see because it is plain to all. As we read earlier out of Romans chapter 1, Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, the, the, the pagans are without excuse before God because they had all of creation shouting to them, declaring to them that there is a God who made them, and yet they did, they did not acknowledge God as creator. And part of what that means is that creation plainly shows us that there is a designer, there is an author who made it. And David's song now moves in the direction of knowing God. Because if we want to move move from knowing about God to knowing God, we need a fuller revelation than just creation. We need God to give a fuller revelation of himself. And that's why we have the word. And that's what he turns in Psalm 19 to next. So we see a progression from the first six verses to verses 7 through 11. And that progression is also highlighted by the name that we see for God in each of those sections. In that first section, the name that we have for God is El, which is just a, a common word that means God. But in the second section, particularly verses 7 through 9, we see six different times the Lord referred to by his personal and covenant name, not just a word, but a name, Yahweh, as seen in the word Lord in all caps, the tetragrammaton as we've talked about before. And so we're moving from the general revelation of the glory of God in creation to the special revelation of God, the glory of God in the word of God. And so here David gives a a beautiful and poetic description of the word. Verses 7 through 9, you'll notice, all follow the same pattern, the same form. First, they give us a a name for the word. The laws of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the testimonies of the Lord. Then, that's followed by a description of the word. Something that it is. Pure, right, true, perfect, And then finally, they give an activity of the word, something that the word does or something that the word accomplishes. And there's six of them there, two in each of those three verses, making six in all. And I just want us to to briefly look at each of these. First, in the first half of verse 7, the fact that the law of the Lord is pure speaks to the word being complete and whole. It's, it's blameless in that is, it is without error or inconsistency. And as such, it revives the soul. That word for revive there carries the connotation of returning or, or even repenting. <clears throat> so the law, which is the word Torah here, the, the law helps us because it, it beckons us to return to the Lord, to return to God. In the second half of verse 7, he says the testimony of the Lord is sure, meaning it's reliable, it's trustworthy, and as such it makes wise the simple. And so first the word revives the soul, and then it makes the simple wise as we learn more about God and as we are discipled with the word. 
In verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, meaning that they are they're straight, they're correct, they're, they're, they're true in that sense. They, they are both morally right and universally right. And as such, it brings joy to the heart, rejoicing the heart. He says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, meaning without any mixture of impurity. Enlightening the eyes, giving light where there is darkness, because it is pure truth. In verse 9, he says, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is an interesting way to refer to the word of God. But the idea here is that it speaks to the effect of awe that comes across the person who encounters the God of the universe on its pages. And so the word of God here is the fear of the Lord. And he says that the fear of the Lord is clean. Speaking there of ceremonial cleanliness versus uncleanliness. And as such, it endures forever. The prophet Isaiah agrees. Grass withers. Flowers fade, but the word of God remains forever. And then verse 9 closes with the rules or the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The, the key here is to not get so bogged down in the poetic descriptions of the word here that we lose sight of what they are saying. God's word is perfect, sure, Right, pure, clean, and true, such that our souls are revived, such that the simple-minded are made wise, such that our hearts are made to rejoice, and our eyes are opened and enlightened to the truth. And if this is true about God's Word, then of course, church, we ought to grow in our desire for it which is where David goes next in verse 10. He says, more to be desired are they than gold. It's as if, it's as if he, he, he gets through those six poetic descriptions of the beauty and the goodness of God's word. And he says, man, they are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The word of God, because these things are true about it, are more valuable than gold and sweeter than honey. David knew what it was to own gold. King David, when he was king, nobody had more gold than him. And so he knew on the one hand what it was to have much pure gold. And on the other hand, he knew what it was to apprehend the glory of God in the scriptures. And he says, I'll take that. Honey was a sweetener, just as it is today. But it was also symbolic for human pleasure. So what are the pleasures of life that, that, that tempt you with their sweetness and in turn dull our taste for God's word? What, what, are the, what are the standards of wealth? Gold was the standard of wealth in that day. What are the standards of wealth for us today that, that we might say, hey, we want that more than the scriptures that, that, that vie for the value of the scriptures what are those things that represent wealth to us today? Material possessions, 
cars, homes, vacations, jobs, retirement, living lives of comfort and awe, if you were to pile all of that up in one heap, would you say, I want the scriptures more than that? Or what are the things that the world offers to us as humans as pleasure? Some of those would be the same things. There could be others. Entertainment, social media, the illicit pleasures that the world has to offer, food, drink, body image, anything. What, what worldly pleasures tempt us and, and, and end up dulling our taste for God's word? In verse 11, David gives a couple of the reasons why the word is more desirable than wealth and pleasure to him. He says, moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. You know, we need to be warned about the sins that we are most susceptible to. We need to be warned about dangers and traps that we don't see. And God's Word does that. God's Word provides us with the warnings for those things. Wealth and pleasures don't warn us about the traps because they are the traps. And so David says the, the laws and precepts of the Lord are worth more than all of the gold in the world. And they are sweeter than honey from the honeycomb, the most pure, the sweetest part of the honey, the sweetest form of the honey. He says, I, I delight in the scriptures more than all that gold, and I derive more pleasure from them than from the very sweetest form of honey. Can we say that? Can you, can you say that? Are there things in your life, whether wealth or possessions or pleasures in the world, that have served to dull your taste for the sweetness of God's word. And then finally in verses 12 through 14. We have our response to the revelation of God. How are we as worshipers to respond to God's revelation of himself. Both in creation and in the word. He says in verse 12. Who can discern his errors. In other words, how can we see where we have transgressed unless we have the word, the law, to show us where we have transgressed? Someone said, I don't know who it was, that reading the Bible is like throwing paint on the invisible man. The same is true with our sins and our errors. By God's grace, he doesn't show them to us all at once. But as we dive into the scriptures, as we mine its depths, what does it do? It shows us who we are. It shows us where we have erred and transgressed. Declare me innocent, David says, from hidden faults. Keep me back. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. I like the way Tony Reinke describes the difference here between hidden faults and presumptuous sins. He says that hidden faults are like trap doors. You don't see the trap, but they swing out from underneath you, and all of a sudden you find yourself in the snare of the trap. Presumptuous sins are like 
They're like double doors like we have in the back. And you see them from far off. And they've got a flashing neon sign that says, don't go in there. There's danger ahead. Stop. And we see the sign and we read the sign and we approach it from afar and we go in anyway. Speaking of the open and willful rebellion against God. And David says that he desires to be free from both and the word aids him in doing so. Both warns him and guides him. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. John Calvin outlines three uses of the law that we see reflected in this psalm and in these verses. First, he says that the law serves as a curb or a a restrainer of evil. That the fear of punishment in the law of the Lord keeps the sinful nature, both of the converted and the unconverted, from giving full vent. It keeps that sinful nature curbed in some way because of the fear of punishment, restrained in some way because of that. And we see that reflected here in David's desire to be... in verse 11, where he, where he talks about the warning that the scriptures provide. And we also see it in verse 13, when he desires to be kept back from and prevented from engaging in presumptuous tent. Keep, keep me back from that double door with a neon sign. Curb me from that. Secondly, Calvin says that the law is a mirror. It's a mirror. It, it shows us ourself. It gives us a reflection of our life and who we are and shows us where we've transgressed. Like David expresses there in verse 12, we, we cannot discern our errors without the benefit of God's word. It's a mirror. And then thirdly, it's a guide. For Christians, under the power of the Holy Spirit, the law of the Lord serves as a guide, leading us to live a life that pleases God because it guides us to God's will for how we ought to act and what we ought to do. And this we see in the closing verse, in verse 14. As David prays that God would guide him, specifically with respect to his thoughts and his desires, that God would guide his heart and his mind and his speech to only speak and think and desire that which is acceptable in God's sight. But I also want us to see here in this closing section that there is a longing here in David's heart to be cleansed of sin. Do you see that? The word has made him aware of his sin. And now having been made aware, he wants to be clean. He wants to be cleansed of this. At the end of verse 12, he says, Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Verse 13, Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. He wants to be innocent and blameless of walking through those doors. But friend, he already had. We know what David is known for. And he had already walked through those double doors with the neon flashing signs. And he longed to be cleansed from the stain of his own sin. And that's what scripture does. 
It shows us God's glory. And then it shows us ourselves. And we see we're not that. Just like Isaiah in in Isaiah 6. After beholding the majesty and the glory of God in that throne room scene. What does he say? Woe is me. I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for I have seen the Lord of hosts in his glory. That's what the Word of God does. It it shows us our sin and being exposed to the sinfulness of our sin. we, We long to be cleansed of it. We long to be free from its grip We long to be released from its guilt and its punishment. And we long to be reconciled to the God with whom we cannot be with that sin. And so as David closes this psalm with that phrase, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, we're reminded that our only hope to be cleansed of our transgressions and be reconciled to God is to put our hope in a redeemer who for David was still yet to come. One who would come and sit on David's throne forever. King Jesus, who achieved righteousness for us in perfectly fulfilling the law in his life and died in our place on the cross, paying the price of our sins and rose three days later, defeating sin and death for all those who would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ as their Redeemer, as their only hope. And this Jesus is the perfect and completed revelation of God. You you see... God's general revelation in in creation is great, but it's incomplete. God's special revelation of himself in the scriptures is fuller. It's a fuller revelation of himself, but it is yet still to be fulfilled in real life. But God's revelation of himself in the person of Jesus Christ is perfect. And complete. After all, Jesus is called what? The Word of God, the Logos of God. What does the Apostle John say in his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on to say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. So church, let us go out these doors today and hear the chorus of the heavens and creation around us as they shout and as they preach to us about the beauty and majesty and glory of God. And let us be committed afresh to feasting on God's word, reading it, studying it, memorizing, meditating on it, And friend, if there is something in your life that has dulled your taste to the sweetness of God's word, get rid of it, set it aside, and develop a taste and a hunger for God's word. 
And may we respond to what the word says and be warned by it and guided by it. So the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart may be acceptable to God. And may we see King Jesus as the fulfillment of it all. Let's pray.